Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. Between the crashing of the waves, Pyrrhus finally managed to get a firm grip on a rock. He got a foothold and hauled himself up, out of the reach of the cold surf, onto the Italian shore. He looked back east across the sea toward Greece, toward his homeland of Epirus. In the low light of the early dawn, he could make out, off in the distance, that battered hulk of his royal galley, halfway sunk now, slowly undulating in the receding storm swell. Abandoning ship last night was definitely the right call. God, how many hours ago was that? Seems like they had been swimming all night. His men were starting to make it to shore now too. And the sun began to crest over the Pindus Range to the east. Those mountains, they were so familiar to him. It looked so different from where he was standing now on the other side of the water, on this strange new land. What on earth happened yesterday? It was totally clear when they set out to cross the strait that morning. Maybe he should have waited till later in the spring like they told him. And where were his elephants? Where was the rest of the fleet? Were they sunk? Scattered? Not exactly an auspicious beginning for what was supposed to be his glorious Italian expedition? Was this really a good idea? Well, perhaps the coming day will clarify things. Pyrrhus turned toward the land. Men were approaching. These might be those Mesopians that Canaeus had told him about. Might be. Whose territory were they in, anyway? The king's body tensed. He slowly reached for the dagger he kept strapped to his waist. Still there. I'm Alex Petkus, and you are listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman heroes in order to sharpen ourselves for the present. We take the ancient philosopher Plutarch as our guide. This is part one of three of the life of Pyrrhus, king of Epirus. In 1775, the British defeated the rebel American colonial forces at Bunker Hill, on the Americans' home turf during the American War of Independence. But the battle was very costly. The Americans fought brilliantly. They broke with military convention of the time and aimed their muskets directly at British officers. It was devastating. And the British had captured their objective, but one of the British commanders of the day, his name was Henry Clinton, he remarked after the battle, another such victory would ruin us. Now, Clinton was a student of history, and it was probably no accident that his words echoed almost verbatim the words used by the subject of this biography, 
after another similarly costly battle. Pyrrhus, like his parallel counterpart, Gaius Marius, was famous for exceeding limits and boundaries. Pyrrhus and Marius both expanded the conception of what was possible, sometimes in frightening ways. They set precedents that later figures followed with devastating results, particularly in Roman history, both of them. Pyrrhus was the first man to bring war elephants to Italy to fight the Romans. Hannibal the Carthaginian did the same thing two generations later. He studied Pyrrhus's campaigns very carefully. In fact, Pyrrhus is probably more famous for his role in Roman history than Greek history, even though he was a Greek. He was one of their most frightening enemies when they were still just a regional power, the Romans, before they had an empire. And I'm excited about this biography because I've come to believe that while Pyrrhus may be sort of famous, it's all relative, of course, when you're talking about these ancient guys, so while he may be sort of famous, I still think he is underappreciated. So, what kind of man was Pyrrhus? Why did he go to war in the first place? What did people in his home country think of him? And what did he think of himself? And, something the Romans didn't bother too much investigating, how did he end his days? Well, the first thing you have to know is his plane almost never got off the ground. Hi folks, quick announcement before we return to your regularly scheduled programming. As promised, for this series, we have collaborated with a musician and composer to bring you an original soundtrack. It's music inspired by actual folk traditions from Epirus itself, where Pyrrhus was from, and nearby regions. So everything in this episode, besides the signature intro cello theme, everything else is original. And I think this is really appropriate that Pyrrhus inspires some music today. It's not the first time. The 17th century composer Alessandro Scarlatti, father of Domenico Scarlatti, both composers, well, Alessandro composed an opera about the stormy relationship of Pyrrhus and Demetrius, which is a story that we treat in this episode, and the opera was actually a smash hit. So today our composer and instrumentalist is Elias Marcantonis, and I highly encourage you to check out his work. You can find it on Facebook and YouTube. Instagram is easy to remember at Elias underscore Mark Antonis. I put some links in the show notes. You can see clips there with audio of him playing some of the traditional instruments that he used in these recordings. So thanks very much, Liako. And another big shout out to our show's sponsor, Jackson Riddle. Mr. Riddle is a fan of this podcast. He's a historical novelist with a legal background, and he's writing on some themes of great current relevance, especially for residents of the U.S., he was inspired by last week's reflection from Nietzsche on the nature of historical writing to sponsor this show and share his work with listeners, and we are very grateful. So I'll tell more about his work a little further on in the episode. His work can be found at jacksonsriddle.com, which I'll have links to in the show notes. So, Pyrrhus's youth. Well, Pyrrhus was famously restless, and maybe it has something to do with his childhood. Pyrrhus started his life in 318 BC in the small mountain kingdom of Epirus. That's in the northwest part of Greece. And he was practically born into wandering and strife. One night, when Pyrrhus was two years old, 
Two men stole into the royal palace and snatched him out of his crib. They were actually friends of his father, the king. The men grabbed hold of a couple of nursemaids, along with the baby, and they hurried them out of the palace. And soon the whole palace was overrun by a mob. They were looking for that baby to get rid of it, but the baby was gone. The men who took little Pyrrhus met up outside the city with a small band of refugees. They had to get to the border as quickly as possible. The king was away at war. If they could escape to one of the nearby allies, they could wait there for the king to return and keep the baby safe. The party gets to a river at the border of Epirus, and there's a town on the other side. But the river is impassable. It's been raining a lot, and the river is overflowing its banks. The pursuers are hot on the trail. The party sees some men on the other side. They shout for help. They hold up the baby. It's kind of hard to hear. The water's very loud, and they sort of start to use signs. And the guys on the other side are kind of confused. Thanks, no, we don't need a baby. It's really frustrating. And then one of the young men with Pyrrhus has an idea. He strips off a piece of bark from a tree, takes the pin of the buckle of his belt, and scratches down a message on it. King's son, they are trying to kill us. Please help. He ties it around a spear and hurls it to the other side. The other guys get the message. They get kind of frantic. They snap into action, and they chop down a couple of trees, lash them together, and they come across to help the fugitives out. And Pyrrhus probably told this story over and over again when he was older. And it came to be that there were little details in the story, details that showed that the gods were watching out for him. For example, Pyrrhus's ancestors were supposed to be descended from the legendary Greek hero Achilles. And it just so happened on that day that one of the men on the other side of that river who helped them out, indeed the man who came and personally carried baby Pyrrhus across that rickety log bridge, his name was Achilles. So they finally get to safety, and the party makes their way to the kingdom to the north in a region called Illyria. And they get to the court of King Glaucius of Illyria. Now, Glaucius was a personal friend of Pyrrhus's father, the king. And Glaucius is actually married to a relative of Pyrrhus. And the band of loyalists, these refugees, they're introduced to Glaucius. And he's sitting there at home with his wife. And the men put the little baby, little baby Pyrrhus, on the floor in front of the king and queen, and they start to tell them what happened. Now, Glaucius hears their story, and he wants to help them, really, he does. But, you know, Glaucius has to think about what's best for the kingdom. He's got to consider the geopolitics of all this, and he slowly pieces together what's happened to cause this mess. Now, so much of understanding what drives Pyrrhus, and indeed this little story that we're in right now, and including why Pyrrhus is so restless, it has to do with his family and who they were. You see, Pyrrhus was from a long royal line. They were the royal family of a tribe called the Molossians. This is one of several Greek tribes of Epirus, but the Molossians are the dominant one. And the kingdom of Epirus, or maybe we could call it the kingdom of the Molossians, it wasn't all that important by itself at this point. On the one hand, Epirus, the territory, it's a relatively large region by Greek standards. Ancient Epirus is partly in modern Greece today, partly in southern Albania. And it was a territory at that time a little bigger than Delaware, comparable in size to maybe the island of Crete. But it's mostly rugged mountain ranges, shepherds, grazing goats and other livestock. They were supposed to have very handsome cows, 
Epirot cows, as they call the residents of Epirus, Epirots. And there are a few narrow valleys where you can grow things. There's also an oracle of Zeus in the area that's pretty important at a place called Dodona. But other than that, it's kind of backwards culturally. However, Epirus has got some very interesting neighbors. I'm not talking about the Illyrians to the north. They are tough and warlike, for sure. I'm talking about their neighbors to the east, who are the Macedonians. And the Macedonians and the Epirots, by the way, Greek-speaking peoples, at least a dialect of Greek. The Illyrians, like King Glaucius, were non-Greek. Now then, Pyrrhus had a very special aunt in the royal family. Technically, she was a second cousin, but she was older. And by the time Pyrrhus was born, this aunt, let's call her that, she was getting on in years. She'd seen many troubles. When she was young, she was a great beauty, and she never really lost that forceful charisma of hers. But when she was just a maiden, her uncle was the king of Epirus, actually, and he arranged for one of these dynastic political marriages for her with the royal family of Macedonia, their neighbors. And this aunt's name was Olympias. And so Olympias the Molossian was sent off long ago to marry an enterprising young king of Macedonia named Philip II. And for their son, they picked a name that was very special in Philip's family. He had an ancestor who had that name, a king of Macedonia. They named their firstborn Alexander. But Olympias would point out, especially when the boy grew up and went on to conquer the Persian Empire with his Macedonian army and become Alexander the Great, that Alexander was also a very special name in her own royal family. Her brother also had that name, and he went on to become king of Epirus. So Alexander the Great, Olympias would observe, was just as much an Epirot as he was a Macedonian, just as much a Molossian as a Macedonian. And so one thing that King Glaucius knows, actually, and he's thinking about this as he's looking on that little tot on his rug, is that baby Pyrrhus's predicament probably has everything to do with Olympias. Olympias was a very colorful character, as we've discussed some in the life of Eumenes. And these days, as Pyrrhus was really in his infancy, she had gotten very actively involved in politics. You see, her son Alexander the Great got sick and died young. And that was three years before Pyrrhus was born. Alexander conquered a massive kingdom stretching from Greece to India, from Egypt to the Caucasus, the former Persian Empire, and more. And then he died almost immediately, and he hadn't named any heir. So some of his generals, after he died, tried to keep the thing all together. Alexander had a baby son that some people wanted to raise and groom to be the future king, people like Eumenes of Cardia, whose life we've told already. But other people, other Macedonian former generals of Alexander decided they preferred to just carve up the empire amongst themselves. And that was what was happening right around the time that Pyrrhus was born. Wars began, great wars of succession, fights over chunks of Alexander's former great empire. And Auntie Olympias was actually a major power player in that Macedonian Game of Thrones, as it were. And she got into a conflict with the man who is now claiming the throne in neighboring Macedonia, the region next to them, Macedonia proper. And he was a Macedonian. His name was Cassander. And Olympias 
raised an army against Cassander. And Pyrrhus's father, the king of Epirus, got involved. He led his own troops to support Olympias against Cassander. But they were defeated. Cassander now ruled Macedonia, and he took Olympias prisoner. Cassander was a cold, ruthless young man. He and Alexander had actually grown up together, and they had grown to hate each other like only former friends can. Cassander was happy to see Alexander's entire family extirpated, together with any distant relatives. So Cassander captured Olympias, but Pyrrhus's father, the king, retreated back to Epirus. However, before the king could get home, Cassander sent some goons speeding ahead to Epirus to anticipate him. There was a rival branch, actually, of the royal family of Epirus, who was always resenting Pyrrhus's and his father's side, and Cassander told the head of this branch to start a revolution, topple the current king, take the throne yourself. Cassander would supply all the money and the force he needed to secure it. Cassander wanted someone in Epirus he could trust, or rather, control. And so that's what had happened. Those were the men who stormed the palace. They had seized the throne for the other branch of the royal family. And King Glaucius of Illyria is sitting there in his living room with these fugitives in front of him, putting all these pieces together. And he knows Pyrrhus's father went to war with Cassander and lost. He knows Cassander is going to want this baby now. Cassander wants to tie up all those loose ends, right? Remove any dynastic threats to his new puppet in Epirus. And Cassander is a very powerful man. He rules not just Macedonia, but most of Greece now. And Glaucius is thinking about all these complicated politics, dynastic struggle in Macedonia, regime change in Epirus, shifting power balance. It's a shame. It's a cute baby. But Glaucius has got to do what's best for Illyria. And this poor kid, so the story goes, crawls along the floor, makes right for Glaucius, all on his own, and he pulls himself up by the king's robe. Glaucius laughs. Their eyes meet. Pyrrhus cries. Glaucius breaks down too. Honey, let's keep him. And so they do. Cassander's now got a puppet firmly on the throne of the Molossians in Epirus, and he offers Glaucius a huge sum of money for the boy, Pyrrhus. But the Illyrians turn him down. And Pyrrhus's father was killed shortly thereafter in a battle with Cassander. So Glaucius raises Pyrrhus as his own, like an Illyrian mountain warrior. And luckily for Pyrrhus and Glaucius, Cassander was being kept very busy by nearby rivals. So Pyrrhus manages to get to the age of 12 without any harm coming to him. And then just at this age, when he's just beginning adolescence at age 12, the Illyrians see an opportunity. And so they march in with an army back to Epirus and they kick out the old king and they reinstall Pyrrhus, their boy, on the throne, on the throne of his fathers in that little mountain kingdom. And so Pyrrhus, with the help of the Illyrians, he was now at last king of Epirus. But how long would it last? He was only a boy still, and they had a lot to teach him about royal administration and palace politics and decorum and so on. But even then, Pyrrhus was old enough to observe how his ancestral kingdom was constantly subject to outside powers. He had been forced out of Epirus by a conflict in neighboring Macedonia, and he had been restored by neighboring Illyria. He had great tutors, sure, but experience had taught Pyrrhus that 
None of the copious advice on how a prince should rule was of any use whatsoever if one could not maintain physical control of one's kingdom. And the only way to do that that made any sense to him was through force of arms. And so amidst his lessons on government and epirot religious custom and lore and taxation, his overwhelming interest was in the arts of the warrior, battle formations, military history, logistics, the mustering of courage, horsemanship, and maybe most importantly, hand-to-hand armed combat. Pyrrhus never lost his taste for the physical act of fighting. And it made sense. Fortune never let him get comfortable. He could never let down his guard. A few years later, when he was 17 years old, he left home to celebrate a wedding. One of his foster brothers that he had grown up with, one of the sons of King Glaucius, was getting married in Illyria. It was a joyful reunion of old friends and family. But while he was away, the rival branch of his royal family, they were still around, they stormed in. They kicked out Pyrrhus's ministers and seized the throne and put his cousin on it. And if Glaucius tried to do anything about it, they were just going to call in Cassander or some other neighboring power. So Pyrrhus, now once again a royal without a throne, a foreigner in a barbarian land, exiled from his home, he considers his options. If he's ever going to get his kingdom back, he needs more friends and more experience. So Pyrrhus decides he's going to cultivate a mentor. And he has a pretty good candidate in mind. Pyrrhus's sister, Deidemea was her name, had gotten fixed up by her family with a very worthy match. He was a prince. He was the son of one of these newly minted ethnically Macedonian kings. Her new husband's name was Demetrius. So at 17 years old, this is the man that Pyrrhus goes to, Demetrius, his brother-in-law. It's 301 BC, and Demetrius, usually in Athens these days, toward the south of Greece, but Pyrrhus happened to know that there was trouble brewing in the east, and Demetrius was in the thick of it. So Pyrrhus boarded a ship to Asia Minor, the modern-day Turkey. That's where Demetrius was. Demetrius was getting ready for battle. So Pyrrhus comes to an area called Phrygia, that's in west-central Asia Minor, and he walks into his brother-in-law's army camp and offers his services. Now, of all the commanders in this Game of Thrones after Alexander the Great's death, Demetrius was the most visually impressive. He was tall, strikingly handsome, godlike, really. For several reasons, people often compared Demetrius to Dionysus. The classical Greek Dionysus, by the way, not depicted as a fat, jolly drunk, but typically a frighteningly beautiful youth. So Demetrius, by now, is actually in his late 30s, though, and he, he's starting to show signs of the drinking and the carousing that he was famous for when he was not on the field. He was looking a little softer, but still, on campaign, Demetrius was laser-focused. They called him Demetrius the Besieger, Polyorchitis in Greek. And he was getting ready for what looked to be the biggest battle of the generation, bigger than anything this part of the world had seen since Alexander's conquest of Persia 30 years ago. And Demetrius and his father controlled a large and very rich chunk of the former empire of Alexander. They had a swath of territory that basically comprised 
Syria, Palestine, and most of Asia Minor, Turkey. And they also controlled a number of cities in central Greece, including Athens, Thebes, Corinth. Demetrius' father was the supreme commander of the army here on the battlefield. They called him Antigonus the One-Eyed. He had been one of Alexander's top generals. We talked at length about Antigonus the One-Eyed in the life of Eumenes. And lined up against Demetrius and Antigonus, there was a coalition of three Greco-Macedonian successor kings. King Cassander, Lysimachus, who was the ruler of Thrace. And the most powerful man there came all the way from Babylon, and his name was Seleucus, founder of the Seleucid dynasty. And there was some dispute. They were basically just fighting for supremacy. So these contenders are facing off near a town called Ipsus in central Phrygia. They were going to name that battle after the town, eventually, the Battle of Ipsus. Pyrrhus knows that men like Demetrius and Antigonus were the ones who really decided the fate of little fiefdoms like Epirus. He studies them. He listens to their councils in their war tent, their political discussions, their military discussions. And Antigonus and Demetrius know that Pyrrhus has a real stake in this fight, too. On the day of the Battle of Ipsus, Pyrrhus was going to be able to look across the field at the man who killed his father and who killed his auntie, the man who was the reason Pyrrhus had grown up in a foreign land, the reason he was now in exile. That was Cassander. Imagine what that was like. So Demetrius and Antigonus are impressed with Pyrrhus. They recognize this kid seems like he can fight, and he sure wants to. So they're thinking, well, let's see what he can do. And they decide to put him in charge of a battalion in the battle. This was going to be quite an experience for Pyrrhus. It was his first big chance as a warrior. It was also his first time seeing elephants. Seleucus, on the other side, brought elephants from the far edge of his kingdom, from the border with India. And in the fight, Pyrrhus fights well. He's victorious in his section of the field. Demetrius is too, actually. But Antigonus's unit succumbs to Seleucus's elephants. Antigonus gets killed in the battle. Once this happens, the rest of the forces on his side collapse. Demetrius ends up fleeing with the remnants of his army. But as Pyrrhus learned, these kings, by this point, they're more or less accepting the status quo of multiple rival Greco-Macedonian kingdoms. They're actually usually more interested in preserving a balance of power than utterly destroying rivals. They don't want to create power vacuums. Those can be dangerous and unpredictable. And maybe even these kings sort of found it useful, even fun, to have rivals to occasionally go to war with, like gentlemen. So the victors eventually came to an agreement with Demetrius. They let him keep control of his relatively small foothold in Greece. It's really just crumbs of what used to be a vast kingdom that he and his father controlled. But to secure goodwill, the two sides of the negotiation decide to exchange hostages. And Pyrrhus volunteers to be a hostage to guarantee Demetrius's compliance. And he saw an opportunity here. To be a hostage in this sort of situation back then meant that he could maybe expand his network of friendships. The plan was for the hostages to be hosted at the court of one of the other rival kings. Pyrrhus was going to be treated well, educated, entertained. He just wasn't going to be free to leave. And he thought, well, if he's not going to be able to return to his kingdom as king, that was as good as any option. And so Pyrrhus sailed to Egypt 
to the court of Ptolemy I. King Ptolemy had been one of Alexander's generals too. He wasn't actually there at the Battle of Ipsus, but he had supported the side that were now the victors. Ptolemy was building up a great Greco-Egyptian civilization based on his newly founded capital city of Alexandria. His palace was full of courtiers, philosophers, and diplomats buzzing around the royal family trying to win favor and shape policy, impress the right person. And Pyrrhus behaves himself so well that Ptolemy and his queen decide to offer one of their eligible daughters in marriage to him. Pyrrhus gets chosen over many other eager men. The girl he was going to marry, her name was Antigone. She was actually named after a mythic heroine, subject of a play of Sophocles. She was actually Ptolemy's stepdaughter. His current queen had been married before. She had children from that prior marriage. She was a widow before that. But all the same, Ptolemy was extremely devoted to his queen, Berenike, and she and her daughter were both famous for their beauty and charm. So this was a very good marriage, and it was going to have big consequences for Pyrrhus's life and for the geopolitics of Greece as well. And so Pyrrhus is busying himself with various arrangements as a dignified hostage in Alexandria, and he's piecing together what kind of man he's going to be in life. He's fought alongside great kings, fought against great kings. He's stood at their war councils. He's marrying one of their daughters. No question that he's in their league, personally at least. But it probably occurred to Pyrrhus that unlike any of these other new Macedonian kings, Pyrrhus was from a long and distinguished royal family. He was the blood relative of the conqueror, Alexander the Great. These other guys had mostly been from middling Macedonian baronial households. So perhaps he even conceived in these early years, as he's coming of age, already playing on the stage of history, why shouldn't he be able to outdo these kings, command them even, like his cousin had? And didn't he have to at least try, not just for himself, but for his people, Everybody on his side of the family was counting on him, of course, but having a strong king meant something else for the region of Epirus. You see, Pyrrhus's grandfather and great-grandfather, they were independent kings of the Molossians. They formed treaties and conducted trade on their own terms. Their neighbors in the region were peers, including the Macedonians. They were entities of comparable size and power. But after the conquests of Alexander, the game board was totally different. Now, there were much more powerful kings pressing against the borders of Epirus. The Macedonian successor kings had huge fortunes, large mercenary armies, vast foreign territories, and they were often fighting over chunks of land several times larger than all of Greece. Right now, there was a Macedonian puppet on the throne of Epirus, and it looked like it was going to stay that way for the foreseeable future. Right now, it was Cassander's man, but even if Pyrrhus could get reinstalled, it would be because some great king had condescended to do him a favor, a king who would expect something in return soon. It looked like Epirus was doomed to ultimately be a vassal state of some bigger neighbor king. Epirus would contribute troops, pay tribute. Some other man, though, would set the agenda. Epirus would never take the glory for itself, never get the best prizes. Unless... The king of the Molossians could somehow establish his throne 
as a peer to these great successor kings. But to do that, Pyrrhus had to find some way to beat them at their own game. And with all of this networking and politicking, he was quietly and patiently putting himself in a position to do just that. Hey guys, we'll get back to the story in just a moment, but I want to give another plug for today's show sponsor, Jackson Riddle. He's got a novel coming out this week entitled A Potter's Vessel. It's the tale of a dispute in a court case filed by the state of Tennessee at the U.S. Supreme Court around what ended up being, sadly, the time of the American Civil War in the 1860s. I say sadly because... You could argue that the whole thing should have been taken to court instead of battle, or at least to court first. As Riddle writes in his preface, the Civil War was the ultimate litigation over the meaning of the U.S. Constitution at the cost of over 600,000 lives. Yet before the war began, the civil process for resolving the dispute was ignored by everyone at all levels of the federal and state governments. My purpose in writing this story is to explore whether adherence to the true process of law could have averted the horrific trial on the battlefield that followed, end quote. So with all the political debates going on in the U.S. right now, disputes between federal versus state policies, it's a timely theme indeed. A Potter's Vessel and the book before that, the first in the series, entitled Born Blind, explore these interesting legal questions authoritatively through the lens of historical fiction. And the author really has got the creds to talk about both the relevant history and the law. So check them out on Amazon or at jacksonsriddle.com. J-A-C-K-S-O-N-S-R-I-D-D-L-E.com. And there are links in the show notes. Also, thank you, Jackson, for being a fan. The opportunity Pyrrhus had been waiting for came, eventually. The old nemesis of his family, Cassander, the king of neighboring Macedonia, died in 297, and there was a power vacuum. Now, Cassander did leave three sons behind as successors, but the eldest, the current ruler now, was weak and sickly. So Ptolemy, in Egypt, sees a chance now to stretch his arm across the sea. He sends Pyrrhus back with a small army along with his new wife, Antigone, to install them back in Epirus. They were counting on Cassander's son being too weak and preoccupied to do anything about it. But the puppet king of Epirus, who happened to be a distant cousin of Pyrrhus, his name was Neoptolemus, he wasn't just going to roll over. He was pretty entrenched, and he had allies among the local kingdoms. So Pyrrhus decides that the best move for him here is to try to come to some sort of an agreement with Neoptolemus. They're relatives. It's a family matter, right? Of course, he uses his army from Egypt as leverage to negotiate with. And so they work something out. It's a little awkward, but the two kings agree to share power in a joint kingship. And so the two kings meet at the capital city in the heartland of the Molossians, a place called Passaron. It's near modern-day Ioannina in Greece. Imagine a wide valley surrounded by mountains, and they have a great public sacrifice to the gods, a big celebration of the new joint rule. All of their entourages are in attendance. But, so the story goes, 
One evening during these days of festivity, a secret plot was unearthed. And the way Plutarch tells it, the plot was revealed to Pyrrhus's wife by another wife, the wife of the keeper of the royal flocks. And the woman happened to be present at a party when some associates of King Neoptolemus were drunk and bragging about this and that, and everyone thought that this wife of the keeper of the royal flocks was asleep or passed out, but she wasn't, and they said something about getting rid of this little boy, Pyrrhus. And she just thought that was terrible, and she thought Lady Antigone should know about it. So, there was a plot to assassinate Pyrrhus. And of course, the new queen tells Pyrrhus, and, well, that's the story that was circulated after the fact. Pyrrhus, by this point, has also learned that a number of Molossian noblemen sort of despised Neoptolemus, and they'd rather see Pyrrhus as the sole ruler. So, he invites Neoptolemus to dinner one night and assassinates him first. Then he and the other noblemen, his new courtiers and lieutenants, they reveal the secret plot of Neoptolemus. Witnesses are produced to explain the situation to everyone, and nobody comes forth to question the story. Now, was there really a plot? It's as likely as not. Either way, one of the kings was bound to find a way to get rid of the other at some point. So at last, after 21 years of insecurity and strife and exile, Pyrrhus was now on the throne once again, and this time, it looked like it was for good. All internal threats were eliminated. He had made the first and essential step of becoming a ruler to contend with. Now he could work on securing his kingdom permanently against outside interference from his neighbors, first of all. But soon, another event shifted the game board dramatically, Pyrrhus's sister, Daedamea, passed away, and she was the one who had been married to King Demetrius. She was the reason Pyrrhus sought that man as a mentor and allied with him, fought under him at the great battle of Ipsus. And now, however much they might admire and respect each other, Demetrius and Pyrrhus didn't have that much to unite them. As a matter of fact, Pyrrhus never really liked the way Demetrius treated his sister. Demetrius was a notorious rake. He had several wives, but he was always on the lookout for new women. Sometimes he'd even marry the new ones, but usually not. It was shameful, being so open and careless about it. And now, well, Pyrrhus and Demetrius' political interests didn't seem to be so aligned anymore either. In fact, they were competitors. Demetrius was in the south of Greece, based in Athens. And in between these two former in-laws... There was the tottering kingdom of Macedonia with a weak king on the throne. It was like a newborn lamb, isolated from the flock, being eyed by a couple of rival eagles. That's certainly how Ptolemy was hoping that they would see it. This was part of the reason that he had married his stepdaughter off to Pyrrhus in the first place. Demetrius was the most energetic and dangerous of the successor kings. He still had the most powerful war fleet in the Mediterranean Sea, Ptolemy knew, after the Battle of Ipsus, that Demetrius was like a cornered animal. He would do anything to regain his status. He had a small foothold in Greece, and he was more than capable of making a play to grab control of the whole of Greece and Macedonia together. And if he did that, then he could bring trouble to Asia, Syria, Egypt, anywhere. Macedonia had a lot of symbolic significance, too, of course. It was the place where it all started, the homeland of all these new rival successor kings. 
Macedonia was also reputed to produce by far the best soldiers, too. So Ptolemy, of course, warned Pyrrhus, watch out for what Demetrius will try to do if he gets a chance. And Pyrrhus got the message. And so, soon, Pyrrhus and Demetrius had an open falling out, and it had to do with Macedonia. Cassander's eldest son, the king and heir to the throne, dies of an illness, and the two younger brothers are disputing over the succession. The older of the remaining two claims the whole kingdom for himself. But their mother, who is the queen, of course, she wants the two boys to divide the kingdom equally, joint rule. Side note here, the queen's name was Thessaloniki. She was actually a half-sister of Alexander the Great, on the side not related to Pyrrhus. And Cassander had founded a city and named it after her, still called that today, Thessaloniki. Well, the older brother really resented his mother's interference. He thought his mom, Thessaloniki, was actually playing favorites, that she loved the younger brother better. So he has her murdered, but his little brother gets away. The younger brother is horrified. He calls for help to his neighbors. He sends both to his neighbor to the south, Demetrius, and to his neighbor to the west, Pyrrhus. So who's going to get there first and help this poor young man defend himself from his murderous older brother? Well, Demetrius happens to be busy fighting a war with the Spartans, so Pyrrhus sees his chance. He swoops in with his army, lightning fast, and offers his services. He drives out the middle brother, the matricide, and installs the nervous young Alexander on the throne. That was the boy's name. It's a great name, don't you think? In recognition of his services, though, let's not call it a payment, just a, a gift, a token, Pyrrhus demands a few Macedonian border territories. Young Alexander is in no position to negotiate hard, so he concedes. And so Pyrrhus ends up practically doubling the size of his kingdom. He gets some lands in the north between the Macedonian heartland and Epirus, but also some territories in southwest Greece. And one of these was a particularly rich prize called Ambracia, it's a large, fertile river valley that borders on Epirus to the south, and Pyrrhus made the biggest city in Ambracia his new capital. It was also called Ambracia. It's modern-day Arta in Greece. Demetrius, however, was infuriated that Pyrrhus had stolen away this easy opportunity from him. Demetrius, remember, had big visions of reconquering the Asian territories that he and his father had lost at the Battle of Ipsus. And to do this, he needed to take over more territory in Greece. And if he did that, then he could recruit more troops, requisition supplies for his army, and so on. And now, this Epirot kinglet, Ptolemy's little marionette, this arrogant ex-brother-in-law, Pyrrhus. And Demetrius himself had been the one who had introduced Pyrrhus into war and politics. Pyrrhus was standing in his way. Pyrrhus had now taken a big chunk of what was rightfully Demetrius's, in his eyes at least. Pyrrhus had to realize the implications. But Demetrius kept his cool. This was just business. After all, he would have done the same in Pyrrhus's place. Demetrius thinks, maybe there's still something to be salvaged here. Maybe he can even teach Pyrrhus a lesson in efficient diplomacy. So, he decides to show up in Macedonia at Alexander's court anyway, with his whole army. You called, my lord? Alexander, a little bit taken aback, 
Well, you know, Pyrrhus already came, but, uh, well, and so he nervously invites Demetrius for dinner to try to patch things up. And Demetrius graciously accepts. And after the fact, Demetrius claimed that Alexander tried to have him assassinated at the feast. And as Demetrius told it, he found out about the assassination plot just in time. He was simply defending himself by making the first move. Once again, who knows? But Alexander was the one who ended up getting assassinated by Demetrius. Demetrius approaches Alexander's Macedonian troops the next morning. He carefully explains what had happened. And they accept the story, and they proclaim Demetrius as the new king of Macedonia. And so with even less exertion than Pyrrhus had spent, Demetrius acquired, literally overnight, the throne and all the remaining territories of Macedonia. The remaining son of Cassander fled the area. Soon he got murdered by Lysimachus, who was the next king over to the east. So probably a good lesson there for quarreling siblings. But Pyrrhus now had gained as a neighbor and permanent arch-rival the most determined, energetic, and still most irritatingly handsome of all the other successor kings. And Demetrius wants back that part of Macedonia that Pyrrhus just annexed to support his grandiose schemes. And what's more, all of the other kings were going to offer all sorts of gifts and enticements to Pyrrhus to get him to start trouble for Demetrius so that Demetrius would have a permanent stumbling block in his backyard to distract him from Asia and the other king's business. Pyrrhus was more than happy to take them up on those offers. He had his own schemes too. So, this was going to be fun and a little challenging. Pyrrhus got busy building up his kingdom. He started fortifying his principal cities, training up his troops. He spent some money to dedicate new offerings at the sacred oracle of Zeus at Dodona. He was going to need the gods' help, too, of course. He also worked on building up his family. Tragically, Pyrrhus's beautiful, magical wife, Antigone, died after giving birth to their first child, a son. Pyrrhus named the boy Ptolemy in honor of his father-in-law. After Antigone died, Pyrrhus decided to follow the pattern of Macedonian kings like Philip, Alexander, and now Demetrius, and marry several wives from neighboring kings to shore up relations with the Illyrians, with the further distant Paeonians, and he also made a very fortunate marriage, a fateful one, to an exotic western girl from across the sea. This girl's father was the most powerful Greek man in the western regions. He was ruler of famously rich lands and islands. He was called Agathocles, and his daughter was Lanasa. They were Sicilians. Agathocles was the tyrant of Syracuse, which was the leading Greek city of Sicily. Syracuse was really the most important city in the entire region, known as Magna Graecia, or Greater Greece. Magna Graecia included both Sicily and most of the coastline of southern Italy. The Greeks had been there for centuries. They had their own customs and perspectives. Agathocles sent his daughter to Epirus with a very impressive dowry, the entire island of Corsaira, modern-day Corfu. 
Corsaira lies right off the coast of Epirus. So Epirus faces Macedonia to the east and the sea to the west. And that's where Corfu is, or Corsaira. And somehow Agathocles controlled that island. But now Pyrrhus did. And so now Pyrrhus has a foot in the water. And it was from his wife, Lanissa, and her entourage that he first began to learn about the complicated affairs of Western Greeks. This might be useful, very useful, at some point. But the first thing on his mind these days always was Demetrius. The two kings had begun raiding each other's territory opportunistically, as gentlemen rivals do, perhaps. There were even several large battles, and this went on for a number of years, each taking advantage of opportunities to score small victories over the other, Treaties were made, and then they were broken. The other kings would pitch in, often to help Pyrrhus with war supplies. And as his former mentor and now esteemed archenemy, Demetrius put Pyrrhus through the best school of war that anyone could hope for. Strategy, tactics, hand-to-hand combat. Pyrrhus could learn it all from the best, if he could keep his head. On one occasion, Demetrius, with his Macedonian forces, invaded Pyrrhus's southern territories. Then Demetrius split his army up in two, and Pyrrhus caught Demetrius's other army in a narrow defile and engaged him. And he was facing not Demetrius, but Demetrius's best general, a man named Pantaucus, renowned for his courage and also his exceptional swordsmanship. And in the battle... Pantaucus calls out over the din to Pyrrhus and challenges him to a champion duel. Maybe he knows that Pyrrhus can't resist. And Pyrrhus eagerly shoves his way to the front through the ranks of his soldiers and accepts. And the two generals have a showdown, a truly Homeric scene. They hurl their spears at each other and they engage with their swords. Pyrrhus gets wounded but he wounds Pantaucus worse on the neck. The general's friends manage to drag him away before Pyrrhus can kill him. And then the Epirots rally and they overwhelm the Macedonians and they win the battle and they capture thousands of the Macedonians alive. It's a decisive victory. And in the aftermath, Pyrrhus offers to spare the Macedonians a life of slavery if they join his army. And they accept. And eventually, these Macedonians really came to admire Pyrrhus. For, as Plutarch says, they likened his aspect and his swiftness and all his motions to those of Alexander the Great himself. And they thought they saw in him shadows, as it were, and resemblances of that leader's speed and might in conflicts. The other kings, they said, represented Alexander with their purple robes, their bodyguards, the inclination of their necks, and their louder tones in conversation, but Pyrrhus and Pyrrhus alone in arms and action. End quote. And so over the years, through constant trials, Pyrrhus grows to become immensely skilled in warfare. And he also very carefully cultivated his reputation as a great warrior king. He liked to remind people that he thought warfare was the most important subject a king should devote himself to the most royal of all branches of learning. Everything else was just a decoration. One time at a fine symposium, someone asked him which of the virtuoso flute players of the day Pyrrhus thought was better. And Pyrrhus replied, Polypercon is a good general, naming one of the successor kings of his day. 
And so he implied that it was fitting for a king to have strong opinions on war and war alone. Everything else was a potential distraction. But all the same, because he was so tough on his enemies and feared in battle, Pyrrhus could be a gracious and affable ruler to his subjects. And Plutarch tells a few anecdotes to illustrate this. In Ambracia, there was a fellow who denounced and reviled him, and people thought that Pyrrhus ought to banish him. Let him remain here, said Pyrrhus, and speak ill of us among a few, rather than carry his slanders round to all mankind. And again, some young fellows indulged in abuse of him over their cups and were brought to task for it. And Pyrrhus asked them if they had indeed said such things, and when one of them replied, We did, O king, and we should have said still more than this if we had had more wine. Pyrrhus laughed and dismissed them. End quote. He even practiced something that people now associate more with the God-favored kings of medieval Europe. Many of his subjects believed his touch could heal, especially those suffering from an affliction of the spleen. And he would have them sacrifice a white rooster and then lay on the ground on their back, and he would press his right foot gently against the spleen, and people would swear that it worked. So there was even a sort of divine charisma about him, truly the descendant of heroes and gods. The biggest win Demetrius scored over Pyrrhus was not on the battlefield, but in the bedchamber. Pyrrhus's Sicilian wife, Lanassa, well, she started to feel that she was being neglected. Pyrrhus was too devoted to his other wives, those barbarian princesses of Illyria and Paeonia. She was tired of it. So even though they had two sons together, Lanassa left him and the children, and she went to Corsaira, and she let it be known that she was back on the market. Now, a normal woman couldn't do that, but when you're Agathocles' daughter, that gives you options. And that was when Demetrius swooped in, 20 years older, but still better looking. In fact, it was said that in appearance, Pyrrhus exuded more the terror than the majesty of royal power. So he lost Lanasa, and with her, that great dowry of the island of Corfu, too when she married Demetrius. But Pyrrhus eventually got him back pretty good. When Demetrius was unsuspecting and preoccupied with other matters, the king on the other side of Macedonia, Lysimachus, who was further west, in Thrace, proposed that he and Pyrrhus should orchestrate a double invasion blitz and drive Demetrius out of Macedonia. Pyrrhus accepted, and Demetrius, completely unprepared, lost Macedonia in a lightning war. Pyrrhus and Lysimachus split the territorial spoils. Lysimachus got the bigger chunk, but Pyrrhus gained too, and it was all at Demetrius' expense. Demetrius was undaunted, though. He had a strong and loyal army with him by that point, and he rallied the cities that remained under his control in southern Greece, and he mustered his grand navy, and he finally staged his great eastern expedition. He was going to take the war across the sea to Lysimachus in Asia Minor, where Lysimachus also held vast territories that used to be his. When Demetrius set out for Asia, he stopped being a problem for Pyrrhus for good. Demetrius's Asian expedition ultimately failed. 
But let's leave for later the story of his ignominious defeat and death after years in captivity, in golden chains, as it were, under the power of King Seleucus. We'll save that for the biography of Demetrius. But crafty old Lysimachus proved to be an even worse neighbor than Demetrius, or than Cassander had been before him. Lysimachus controlled more territory, not just part of Macedonia and neighboring Thrace, but vast riches across the straits in Asia, too. He had what seemed to Pyrrhus like unlimited resources. Lysimachus had already tried a few tricks on Pyrrhus, forging letters to him in the name of Ptolemy to try to trick him into concessions. Pyrrhus figured that one out. Lysimachus was a faithless Machiavellian strongman. He made or broke treaties according to the whims of his own immediate advantage. And so Pyrrhus wasn't that surprised in 285 BC when Lysimachus simply marched in with his huge army and seized Pyrrhus's entire share of the former territories of Demetrius that they had divided amongst themselves. What are you going to do about it, kid? Well, Pyrrhus now took stock of the situation. He was now in his mid-30s. He had been playing the power game for more than a decade. He was thoroughly schooled in the arts of kingly war and diplomacy by years of dealing with powerful, turbulent neighbors. He had an international reputation as a warrior king. But Epirus, his ancestral kingdom, and the throne of the Molossians, they were back more or less where they started. His kingdom extended a little bit further south than it had when he was born, admittedly. But the house of Iacus, as it was called, the royal family descended from the bloodline of Achilles, the Molossian line that had once produced the greatest conqueror in history, it was now, once again, doomed to rule no more than a client kingdom. In good times, it was a buffer state. In worse times, more like a puppet state. Pushed around by the likes of Lysimachus, used as a diplomatic pawn by Ptolemy or Seleucus or whoever might soon replace those old men, Pyrrhus felt stuck. He had given his people such greater hopes, a grand future, in which Epirus met its rival kingdoms at the table as an equal. A future where they were free from foreign powers meddling in their domestic affairs, playing factions off each other, fomenting suspicion, seizing their resources at will. Pyrrhus was his people's champion, and even though there had been some promising adventures, it looked now like he might be destined to fail them. But what could he really do? And then, one day... A delegation arrived at the wide valley of Ambracia and presented itself at his court. They had sailed in from the western territories, from greater Greece, men from the city of Tarentum on the Italian mainland. They wanted an audience with the king. Pyrrhus was familiar with Tarentum from his estranged wife, Lanassa, who was from Syracuse. Tarentum was Syracuse's main rival among the many Greek states of the west, the Sparta to its Athens, you might say. It was a great naval power, a rich city, a proud people. Pyrrhus ordered the men to be let in. Speak, he said. The Tarentines presented many exotic gifts. I like to imagine, maybe. There was a goblet that the Pythagorean philosopher-ruler Archytas of Tarentum had once drunk from. Who knows? The ambassadors flattered Pyrrhus, informed him that his renown reached far and wide. 
He was a great king, a warrior king, a man of honor and renown. Yes. And they knew of his reputation for justice, and they humbly besought the king's aid in resolving a matter of great injustice in which they had been wronged. Go on. And they explained that they were being harassed by an aggressive expansionist barbarian power situated to the north on the Italian mainland. This people had been making incursions into their territories for a number of years, but Tarentum had bravely kept them off through a combination of diplomacy and battle. But the barbarians had now made treaties with some of Tarentum's former allies, and they had built a fleet, and they were provoking the Tarentines at sea. The Tarentines had tried to defend themselves, assert their independence, but these barbarians used this resistance as an excuse to wage an all-out war on Tarentum. And the barbarians came from a city they called Rome. Even the city's name indicated its arrogance. It was Rome in Greek, a name that literally meant force. Pyrrhus asked the men to give him some time to consider and dismissed them. He was beginning to see a path forward for himself and his kingdom. Italy and Sicily were famously rich. Merchant cities there had been building fortunes over generations, trading with Carthage, Spain, Egypt, Syria, Phoenicia. The land was excellent too. The philosophers thought it was something about those volcanoes that made things grow like they didn't in other places. Fire in the dirt, maybe. And the people were warlike. Greeks constantly fighting the native Italians, fighting the Carthaginians, fighting each other on land and sea. This would be a great source of recruits for whatever future endeavors Pyrrhus had in mind. It was, in some, an excellent opportunity to make some new friends. In order to win at the power game of the successor kings in Greece, Pyrrhus might just have to go out of bounds. It was time to summon his war council. He sent a message to the envoys. Thank you. Go home. I will meet you in Tarentum in the spring. So there you have part one of three of Pyrrhus's life. Now then, before we end, we're really just getting started with Pyrrhus, but what can we take from his story up to this point? Well, first of all, partly through force of circumstance, and partly through personal preference, Pyrrhus began at a young age to develop a key skill that he had every reason to believe was going to serve him in life. For him, it was the art of war. And this is not just the ability to command others in arms, but to wield them himself. And isn't it true that the best commander is, first of all, an excellent soldier? And perhaps the best master builder is intimately familiar with the stonemason's craft, it doesn't have to be that way in all fields, necessarily. But this certainly seems to be the case with the art of war. Because the king must be courageous. And courage begins with a resistance to the physical sensation of fear in one's body. Something trained above all in combat itself. What is the master skill in your field? It's not always easy to identify. But leaders always need courage. So that's something you could always work on. Whatever you determine the foundation to be, try to start early. And if it's too late for you to start early, start now. Teach your kids to start early. Well, more on Pyrrhus later. 
But for now, stay strong, stay ancient, and stay tuned. Until next time, this is Alex Petkus. 